It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated throughout Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and at 3cr.org.au and of course whatever podcasting app you choose. Don't forget also you can follow us at Twitter, uh, sorry, on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name's Michael Steindl and today I've got with Laura, <laughs> Laura Perry, sorry, um, who's uh, battled in from a bit of a husky voice. Uh, we don't have Kate today. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing? Good. Good, thank you. Today we're talking to Brendan Condon, who is Managing Director and Co-Founder of Australian Ecosystems, which is an integrated company that offers a range of services in landscape construction and ecological land revegetation. Brendan has 25 years' experience in ecological restoration projects. He's overseen the development and running of all aspects of the company, including nursery design and construction, development of transport systems and planting systems, the, pl- the seed collection, growing, planting and maintenance to maturity of over 30 million plants on over 500 projects across a diverse range of ecosystem types across the greater Melbourne region and Victoria. Today we're talking with Brendan about a, a variety of topics including wetland treatments, stormwater harvesting and his most recent project, the Cape Patterson Sustainable Housing Project. Sustainable homes that are being built to offer outstanding livability in a range of needs with a high, with very high energy ratings. Good morning, Brendan. Thanks good, for joining us. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. So, before we um, get into the, all the topics I just listed above, we always do like to get the uh, the background history. And you were talking to us just a bit before we came on air. Um, just tell us about your early days and how you ended up where you are. Yeah. Look, I guess uh, I worked out pretty. Uh, at a very young age that we're not really looking after the planet that well and decided that I wanted to work for the planet and build a sustainable society and protect biodiversity. In the 1990s, uh, the CSIRO released a study on Port Phillip Bay that uh, identified that if we didn't stop um, releasing all this stormwater pollution into the bay, the, the bay would eventually flip into a very unhealthy state. And the solution they put forward was to build wetlands. So I saw that study and thought, right, there's going to be a, a big um, increase in the amount of wetlands we build. So I built a wetland nursery and started growing plants. In the first year, we grew 60,000 plants. The second year, 600,000 plants. And now, 20 years later, we've grown 30 million plants. And we revegetate these big wetlands right around the greater Melbourne region that capture stormwater running off housing estates. And it holds up the stormwater and filters it and takes out the pollution before it goes into the bay. And um, it's been very, very successful in hitting the pollution reduction targets. But it also has contributed to Melbourne's livability with all these beautiful wetlands, which are really important for mental health and uh, biodiversity, habitat refugia and all, all that sort of stuff. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that, that's how I got going in, in, in that space. Which, which, which wetlands are you talking about around Melbourne? So, look, if you get up in a, a light aircraft and fly right around the greater Melbourne region, you can see them uh, <laughs> wherever you look now because we've done so many projects. So I guess the uh, biggest project we did was the waterways down on the Mordialic Creek. Uh, it was a housing estate that... Um, needed to uh, uh, that needed to build itself up above the flood line so they created massive uh, massive wetlands to treat the stormwater and solve a range of problems we planted 1.2 million plants on that project yes 
Right. Okay. And now, so now you're moving um, more into urban, and you're you're trying to make like urban cities sustainable. Yep. You've got a project happening called the Urban Food Bowl. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So uh, I guess you know, having planted thirty million plants, uh, great supporter of uh, restoring biodiversity. But unless we actually uh, make cities more sustainable, that's the engine house of the problem that's generating all the carbon weight, you know, carbon emissions and um, chewing up the world's resources. We really need to reset cities quite fast. We've got major challenges coming in terms of food and water security um, uh, and driven by climate change. So now I'm focusing a lot of effort on how to capture stormwater and uh, treat that and plumb that back into cities to drought-proof cities. So I have another company called Biofilter and we've been um, designing and building big stormwater harvesting systems that intercept underground stormwater pipes, pull out all the pollutants, capture the water and plumb it into Melbourne's parks and gardens. Mm. So we have a number of big big systems around uh, the city of Melbourne at the moment that are producing water and now um, we're looking at turning uh, our attention to uh, food growing for cities. So um, really spatially efficient, water efficient food growing systems that make it really easy for city dwellers to compost food waste, create soil and grow food and close close loops. So being an ex-member of the um, Cave Clan, I'm always fascinated when I see these um, underground works happening and one of them, of course, was the along Fitzroy Gardens there, along off Wellington Parade, um, that massive hole there that took several years to dig and, and backfill. That looked like it was about 5 million litres, is that right, the, just judging by the dimensions? And yeah, so the Fitzroy Gardens uh, project in the city of Melbourne is the biggest one that's been constructed and that was a biofilter uh, system. Uh, we licensed that to the city of Melbourne and we built the, uh, the controls and the smarts and the brain that drives the system and the filters and it's got a 5 million litre underground tank. Um, it's in the low point at Fitzroy Gardens, captures a huge amount of water from a very large part of the city and then treats that and plums that back into drought-proofing that park. And um, mm. there's a series of them around Melbourne and uh, they're collectively now producing hundreds of millions of litres of water and, and it's just a free kick. We've got so much of this stormwater mm. sheeting off our hard surfaces. We've got more water going into our waterways than we ever did before urbanisation because mm. it's all sheeting off these hard surfaces yes, rather than yes. being absorbed by vegetation and it's a, a huge resource uh, that, w that we can tap into quite easily. And you're cleaning up the water too instead of sending that waste in. That's right so they um, they capture the water, filter the pollution, protect the downstream receiving waters and then generate this wonderful fit for purpose resource and we can plumb those into our parks instead of using uh, precious drinking water. And, and just on this cleaning up I want to hark back to the um uh, the wetlands treatment, um, before we leave that one, can you just go through the range of advantages? Obviously, they, they look great when we go for walks or ride our bikes through those. Um, we see birds that we weren't seeing there before. But this is a, a staged filtering system, isn't it? It's actually using um, nature, the plants, to, act, to filter the water? That's right. So they're designed with uh, front-end um, uh, uh, catchments that drop out the big sediments mm -hmm. and often they have uh, gross pollutant traps that take out the big floating debris and rubbish and then they retain the water for up to 72 hours. The water has to push through uh, wetland plants and as it pushes through the physical barrier of all the millions of stems of plants, the sediments drop out. But on all the stems of the plants you get bacteria, a biofilm of bacteria and that's the engine house that actually metabolises the pollutants. So dog shit oil off the roads, all that? Yeah, so we have um, you know, uh, hundreds of tonnes of, of human source nitrogen uh, coming from the catchments that's above the, the background natural loads and these, these systems are fantastic at pulling all that out. Mm. Are there other cities around Australia 
doing this? There so, are. Yeah, look, it's uh, sort of happening all around the world cool. uh, now. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, moving on to the Cape Patterson Sustainable Housing. Um, when did the first phase of this project start and what were you setting out to achieve when you really dived into it? I guess uh, building, you know, doing the wetland restoration on hundreds of sites around Melbourne. We've been doing the wonderful biodiversity work, but I've been looking up at the built form and looking at the standard housing that we're building on on um, modern subdivisions. And uh, you know, we're not really building to the standards uh, required. Uh, housing that we're building at the moment is still quite energy intensive, has very high running costs, and uh, CSIRO just uh, did a, a study on a, a number of um, of new homes. Uh, where they did an air exchange test, and and all those um, uh, about fifty percent of their homes failed their air exchange test, so they're not they're not hitting their ratings and their energy efficiency. What that locks in is um, uh, poor thermal comfort uh, for residents, uh, low levels of resilience in terms of future climate events so like heat waves. Not hitting air exchange mean they're exchanging too much air or not enough? Uh, they're leaking. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So they're they're leaking. Um, so so you know. That means that you have to. Um, they're not. They're not uh, very thermally efficient, and you need to pour a whole lot of energy into that house in terms of heating and cooling to force it within a comfortable thermal band for the residents. And that's why we have houses in Australia. It costs thousands of dollars a year to run. And um, so I looked at that, and I thought, look, we can really step up. So ten years ago, I decided to try and build a demonstration housing project, and and um, pull together really good energy efficiency experts, builders, and architects, and we we, we started on our journey on the Cape. Mm. And they deal with um, the issues that current houses have uh, where they, in the summer where it's really dry, you get to a chilled cold and in the winter when it's humid, you get to a muggy warm. That's right. So from first principles, we designed the estate to run on the solar economy. So passive solar principles and the use of clean energy um, and aiming for operational zero carbon emissions. So really a climate adapted, the first greenfield climate adapted estate in Australia. Mm. And it's interesting, 10 years ago, the cost of sustainability was you know, quite high. Um, but over the 10 years that it took us with our planning process, uh, the, the economics of sustainability flipped on their head. And this is a really good news story for Australians. Uh, over the last 10 years, we've had uh, the cost of electricity has doubled. The cost of gas has gone up 50%. The cost of solar panels has dropped 80 to 90%. The efficiency of these new wonderful home uh, heating and cooling and cooking systems has uh, you know, gone off the charts. So the economic performance of sustainable homes compared to conventional, sustainable homes have now passed conventional homes like, like a ship in the night and there's a massive performance gap opening up not only in comfort levels but in economics. So we've just built our first demonstration house at the Cape, uh, our sales centre, 8.2 star energy efficient home, big, beautiful big family home. The Alternative Technology Association have independently um, assessed the running costs of the home and um, they tell us that the, the home has less than $500 a year running costs. Mm. Now, that's 15% of uh, this, you know, a state average running cost of a house of the same size. You're so, talking big family home, two-bedroom home? It's a four-bedroom, double-storey yeah. home. Mm-hmm. So, so that home's got all the basics of passive solar design, good northern orientation. It's got... Um, uh, glazing the windows are positioned so it invites in the winter sun into the living rooms. There's thermal mass, so the winter sun contacts that thermal mass and warms up and then re-releases that warmth overnight. So it stays in a beautiful, stable thermal band. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and uh, all that thermal as- mass um, in summer acts as a cool store, and the shading is set up so it excludes that hot summer sun. So the house works 24 hours a day through passive design uh, to maintain the home between 18 to 25 degrees. So, and, and then once you've done that, you outfit it with clean energy, the, the solar panels, and the ultra-efficient running systems, and then you have a house that virtually has no bills. Mm. So we can assume that these houses are not using gas? So no, we've designed without gas. Um, Cape Patterson doesn't, isn't hooked up to the gas grid, uh, so bottled gas is very expensive. But the interesting thing now is that when you combine what we're doing in our, our homes, the uh, split cycle, um, sand, the um, Dakin seven star split cycle heating and cooling systems, the sand and heat pumps for hot water, um, the, uh, the electric cooktops, the combination of those things now uh, beats gas on economics in any climate zone in Australia. So this is the, the flow through of wonderful sustainability uh, that's now turning home economics on their head. And you now have homes, we've just actually modelled the first street at the Cape, nine homes, we've sold it out and we're, we're, we're building. That whole street has a, an annual energy bill of less than $5,000. So that's $20,000 a year of savings in that street this year and every year going forward. And that will actually increase as energy costs go north. So when people say that you can't tackle climate change because it's going to hurt your hip pocket or your household budget, it's, it's garbage. It's actually now the reverse. Um, if you're not locking in with good design and sustainability, you're actually locking yourself into a really high-cost future. And this is just such um, tangible proof of the uh, BZE um, home report where it said basically um, we should be running off electricity, not gas, um, which ties in, of course, with, with all the climate science that says we've just got to stop fossil fuels dead effectively. Yep. Um, and that when you go electricity, um, using the heat pump effects, you get much greater efficiency. And, of course, the, the final leg of that is using renewable electricity rather than the um, brown coal electricity. Yep. Um, a few more um, points about these homes that I that, um, just wanted to tease out with you. Um, you, you said uh, that they're... Um, built electric vehicle ready. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, so um, that's another disruptive technology that's going to really turn economic, household economics on their head. We've done internal research, um, and by 2022, which is only six years away, the the cost to build a long-range electric electric vehicle will be the same as building an internal combustion engine vehicle. So mm-hmm. the, the more the more expensive part of the EV is the battery, yep. and that's coming down. Yes. Petrol vehicles have all sorts of gear that you don't need in an electric vehicle, you know, gearboxes, transmissions, oil, all that stuff. I so, know a friend in the uh, motor trade who says the um, motor vehicle industry hates electric vehicles because there's no servicing. There's sort of about four moving parts. <laughs> exactly. So they're much simpler. So within six years, I'll be the same cost to build, but the EVs will have 25% of the running cost of uh, a petrol vehicle. So mm-hmm. so the CapEx and the OpEx, the, the capital cost and the operational costs um, will, will be superior for EVs. I think in uh, it's going to happen well before six years' time. It'll happen mm-hmm. maybe three or four years' time. And uh, going forward, it'll be a silly economic decision to gr- to buy petrol vehicles. So I think we're going to see uh, uh, electric vehicles will, will kill off petrol vehicles in the next decade. So we're planning for that. All the homes are, have um, 15 amp electric vehicle charge points. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the homes are, have solar systems that are designed to produce a surplus of clean energy 
above the home uh, requirements. operation requirements. Yeah. Sufficient, the first home has generates sufficient energy to power an EV around 10,000 kilometres a year. And we're also putting in uh, public electric vehicle infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I'll make a prediction. Um, we're calling them EV charge points, but they'll be EV docking stations because in future you will have autonomous electric vehicles and you'll be able to actually call it, call one up on your smartphone and it'll undock and drive around and, and, and pick you up and take you into town while you're reading a book. So it'll be I mean, like your little smart vacuum cleaner that goes home and docks and charges. And, and then car ownership. You know, there's yeah. look, all these things are going uh, to change for the better. So it's a really exciting time on the climate front in terms of the innovation coming through. And it's going to, you know, the thing we don't count for is how easy it's going to be to actually make a lot of these changes because the economics are going to be superior to do so. Mm-hmm. So where's the village at in terms of scale at the moment? You, you mentioned the first home as the uh, marketing one. Yeah, so we build our sales centre. We're building a second home next door. It's another 8.2-star single-storey home. Um then we're, we're doing the site cut for our third home and then the fourth home will start next month and that's actually a 10-star home. So one of the builders is attempting. So I think that's one possible? Of, it is, yeah. So uh, he, he's been doing a huge amount of work with Tim Adams, who I think is the former president of the Building Designers Association of Victoria, who has designed 10-star homes. And uh, the, you know they're putting a huge amount of effort into proving up a 10-star home. So that's mm. a home that's that thermally efficient. It doesn't need mechanical heating and cooling. Mm. Um, so and then then uh, more residents will start building, and and then we'll just keep going. Uh, we're open sourcing uh, everything we do because it's really about Australia. Get moving. Uh, mm. We're right behind the eight ball. We've been sitting on our hands on climate change for you know a few decades, and um, we yeah, we need to, to get yeah. to get get moving, and and the solutions are there. Mm. So this is, um, I think I heard the first phase is 32 homes, is it? And so we built stage one, uh, and that's 32 homes. So we're selling through stage one at the moment. And um, we're also building our community garden at the moment, which is another really, really cool um, facility. It's a big half hectare site. We're capturing all this, the rainwater, surplus rainwater from the stage one homes, directing it down the hill, capturing it in a big water tank and plumbing that into urban food production. So we've got um, advanced raised wicking beds going in in June. So the garden will be up and functional coming into spring. Uh, the first street will start building out in spring, and then it'll just uh, it'll then we'll trigger stage two, stage three, and keep going. You've described this. Um uh, estate is um, climate change ready. Mm. Um, apart from the features you just had, uh, talked about, it's um, far enough above sea level, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's uh, 25 metres. Nothing's built below 25 metres above sea level, so we can cope with West Antarctic and melting and, and uh, Greenland. But if we're East Antarctica gets going, we're in trouble. <laughs> so we're actually a lot higher than a fair bit of Melbourne, um, even though we're on the coast and we look out on beautiful surf beaches and we're sitting up on, a, on, on good bedrock. <laughs> So the, the, the houses uh, need to source energy from um, places other than their solar PV um, with battery storage not quite you know, yeah, ready so, for the market? So the houses are ultra-efficient. They're grid-connected. Uh, we're connected to uh, the water grid, to uh, broadband uh, with fibre optics to each home. And we're connected to um, um, you know conventional sewage, but they're designed to use as little as possible of that energy. On an annual basis, they'll produce a surplus of clean energy, um, and they'll be a cinch to put in uh, batteries in future. So that five hundred dollars a year of running costs, four hundred of that is the grid connection fee. Mm. Uh, if you want to knock that in, out in future, then mm-hmm. throw in a battery bank. Um, we're the first estate, I think, in Australia where the power company has said to us. You're going to have to pay for all your own power infrastructure. Usually the power company pays for it and then they hook up all their residents and, mm-hmm. and bill. Uh, but they said to us, we're never going to make the money back <laughs> because your residents uh, are really going to be paying minuscule bills. 
So that's a hurt. That, that yeah. sort of hurt hurt us when we found that out a few years ago. But we also wear it as a badge of honour. But um, so if you don't believe us about the economics, that the, the power company's done its own spreadsheet, mm. and they just said these people are not going to be paying bills. So we're aiming eventually for a half million dollar annual um, energy saving uh, mm. of money staying in the pockets of the community. Yeah, just mentioning that connection fee um, reminded me. I forgot to mention before with the gas, not only are we fixing the fossil fuel issue um, and being able to use electricity, but you actually um, straight out save that connection cost, which is a major portion of your bill, isn't it? That's correct. Um, And uh, really, we're spending a lot of money still on uh, gas infrastructure around Victoria, but the business case is no longer there. So um, I I don't think we're going to see... I know Matthew Wright suggested we reuse it for um, reclaimed water, (laughs) which sounded really novel lateral thinking to me. (laughs) Um, Can we come back to your urban food project and Mm. just tell us a bit more about what you're doing there? Okay, so uh, that's through Biofilter um, and we're designing ultra-water-efficient vertical uh, gardens and horizontal gardens that are really designed for busy city dwellers um, who don't have a lot of time to spend in in the gardening. They're they're bottom-watering wicking beds. You can build them up your walls, you can build them in little city spaces, those little nooks and crannies in car parks, rooftop gardens, and um, you can buddy them with, with composting and vermiculture, create soil, and then put that soil into food production. And because they're bottom watering or wicking, they're ultra water efficient. The only water loss is evapotranspiration out of the foliage of the plants themselves. There's mm-hmm. no top watering. And what you find is you get a, a nice little dry crust on the top. You plant through that, the plants reach down for the water. Mm-hmm. But because it's got a dry crust, weeds can't grow. So it's, it's sort of no um, weed guarding or, or very little in the way of weeds. Uh, weeds. Yeah. And um, it's you know it's really sort of set and forget. You can go away for a week and come back, and your veggies will be smiling at you uh, rather than sort of wilting. Uh, so we're now building these for schools. Uh, we build a urban garden espresso bar in Bay Street, Port Melbourne. That's produced about two thousand dollars worth of produce um, so far in eight months, which we're donating to a, a charity kitchen. And uh, and the Cape is the first big one. Uh, that eventually will produce about $140,000 worth of produce per annum for the residents at the Cape. Is there a, a body corp that will look after, for example, the the food? Yeah, so the Cape's uh, unusual. We've, uh, we've got more than 50% open space, which we're turning back to parks and community assets and um, um, habitat restoration and, and, the, and the garden and we're controlling that space through our body corporate and so yeah there'll be a body corporate o- overlooking that there'll be a community garden collective uh, within, within that, that that runs the garden but it's really well designed uh, the gardens are really well designed to be just maximum produce for minimum effort so we're pretty excited about that So when people talk about um, cities trying to produce their own food mm. how realistic is that? What, what sort of percentage could they produce? Because you've got such a Concentrated density of population. We, we, all right. Well, City of Melbourne's just um, mapped uh, the vacant rooftop space in the City of Melbourne mm-hmm. uh, that, that's suitable for uh, rooftop horticulture. Um, and I think, look, I, uh, there might have been something like 200 hectares of rooftop space. Mm-hmm. With intensive rooftop um, agriculture, horticulture, you could produce enough food to feed the, the, the whole City of Melbourne for about a month off those rooftops. So a bit less than 10% of our food requirements. Of That's food. it, yeah. Mm. So uh, there's, there's so huge... It's not op- trivial. It's not trivial. And uh, with climate change, you know, if we if we get to 2, 3, 4 degrees, then there's a you know, 70, 80% drop-off of productivity 
in the Murray-Darling Basin, mm -hmm. diminishing water resources, big food security issues. We're also building over our food bowls, which is really silly, all that beautiful yes. topsoil. Yeah. So we think we're going to be importing food in the future. Well, I don't know where we think we're going to import for, for because again, a lot of countries are going to have their own problems with climate change. So we really need cities to start growing food again and make it, uh, and then just use really good design to make it easy. Mm. Could mm. A, a city like Melbourne also use some sort of desalination um, to grow food as well off ocean water or...? Yeah, quite possibly. And there's uh, solar-powered desalination now. They just built one on the Air Peninsula, which pulls up saline groundwater and desalinates it using solar power, solar thermal. And then mm -hmm. the, the, the energy also generates the um, – runs the, the whole operation. So mm -hmm. there's fantastic um, food security innovation coming through. And this is the exciting thing. You know, we've got – uh, I think in the next 10 years, uh, we've got the chance to really quite dramatically and quickly transform our economy to ultra-low carbon. The problem is, how do we pull the stuff out of the atmosphere we're throwing up there? The stuff that mm. uh, will sit there we've for a thousand years. Yes. We've actually got to work out, out how to draw that stuff down Again, and do something right useful with it. zero emissions, our very essence. Yeah. And this is where I still see the gaps. Uh, you know, It's technically completely feasible to flip our economy to zero carbon. Mm. We will. Economics will win through. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, that, leg it's that legacy problem, and this is where a lot of work's uh, got to be done and this is where we're sort of now turning our attention to. Yeah, because even the um, IPCC reports have just factored in a drawdown that they haven't given any explanation of how they're going to do it. They, yeah, we, it's we, non-existent we, technology. Look, we're light on for the solutions. I'm sure there's lots of really clever people working all over the world on it. We're starting to work on this. This is a project we're sort of now really focusing mm -hmm. on because we're going to have to fix that problem. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> excuse me, Brent. Uh, I want to cycle back to the uh, start when we asked you about you and you came in at the nice... Um, conservative end of, of starting your company but <laughs> you left out the the chat before about the rebel without a cause <laughs> do you want to tell us a bit about that yeah sure uh in my um early days in my you know early 20s uh and late teens you know, i was pretty unhappy about the way we were um trashing ecosystems and uh i did a lot of activist work swam out in front of the odd nuclear submarine um blockaded the odd rainforest timber ship coming in from Southeast Asia and um, did a lot of work with the supporting East Timor and human rights stuff. So, yeah, I did a lot of uh, interesting stuff in my early days. It was all strategic, non-violent, disciplined um, campaigning um, and, you know, had great results in doing that. And there's a huge part in that. We really need that stepping up to, to shift ourselves to a clean energy economy. Mm -hmm. uh, big place for it. And then I started flipping into just saying, right, I'm going to just get my dollars all work, doing push-ups and, and working hard for the planet and, and, and invest in the solutions. And that's and just point at that. That's, uh, that's the way to do it. Mm. So at the um, other end of the spectrum, um, what's your, we've, in our last few minutes, yep. um, what's your vision of the future? I mean, there's a range of, of um, scenarios possible. And if you look at Paul Gilding's Great Disruption, <laughs> we're in for all hell. We're just basically going to crash ecologically and financially and then rebuild from that. You will seem to be taking a much more positive approach working with the system and believe it can change. Oh, that. look, the dangers are huge and we're seeing ecosystems now falling over the Great Barrier Reef, um, you know, uh, huge forest fires right around the planet. Um, you know, things are starting to really ramp up in the natural world. Um but at the same time, uh, the solutions are coming through and the, everyone needs to reset their business plan every three months to calibrate to the new solutions and better economics of sustainability that are coming through. So there's lots of optimism. It's about can we actually deal with that legacy issue of the, of the amount of um, CO2 in the atmosphere that's driving the warming? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm hoping to see uh, solutions flow through uh, to resolve that and, and, and that'll, that'll determine whether we, you know, how, how big the disruption is. Mm -hmm. 
And the last two minutes, what haven't we covered that we should have? What else would you like to tell us about? Um, <laughs> Put no, you on the spot there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I think it's uh, it's just exciting. It's exciting times. Uh, I think the fundamental thing is that you can drag a, a hydrocarbon molecule out of a deep oil well or Saudi Arabia and send it across the world, uh, handle it multiple times, and then burn it and release some carbon that the next generation has to deal with and have all the expense of that, or you can now make um, solar oil off your rooftop by mm-hmm. turning photons into electrons and putting it into your car. The simplicity of this stuff is going to beat fossil fuels, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's the, you know, th- that, that is the good news. I think um, you know, there is a lot to be optimistic about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, can't, we can't sit on our hands, and we need to get those solutions up ASAP. And, and on the election front, um, I'm... A lot of us are trying to work to make this a climate election. We have a Prime Minister who didn't even mention climate change in his opening talk. Um, yeah. Where do you see that? Do you, do you think um, there will be a, a groundswell that comes out unexpectedly that reveals itself at the election? Or Look, you know, let's, let's, um, let's hope that we have a position where we, we have a balance of power mm-hmm. uh, situation with the Greens and they can, they can actually drive some, uh, some good outcomes. I, I think the, the day of uh, single-party politics is sort of moving on, and uh, I think we're going to get into multi-party situations and, and get some really good leverage. Let's hope we do. Um, any, any politician who's now not seriously addressing climate change uh, doesn't, doesn't deserve uh, a position of authority. Okay, and where can people find out more about your activities? I think uh, live at the Cape. <laughs> .com.au, uh, yeah. that's going to be really, if you just register interest, we're, we're sending through a whole lot of info, uh, info on um, solutions and also live at the Cape on Facebook. Uh, just follow us. We're posting all sorts of great, great stuff uh, all the time. Yep. Absolutely exciting um, discussion today, Brendan. Um, I know um, I've got active on Facebook in recent years purely from a climate change activities and I can't get on there without seeing your activities <laughs> <laughs> popping up everywhere. For our listeners, you can find out more information about today's discussions on the BZE website. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then go to the www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. Thank you very much, Brendan. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, um, Max. Another Thanks, Brendan. Lovely, lovely fascinating discussion. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pantidra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. It's 40 years that the station's been around. I hope it's around for the next 40 years. CR has been a trailblazer. It's still the leader and the benchmark in terms of actually engaging the community. Keep the trail blazing. Support 3CR in our 40th birthday radiothon. From June 6 to 19. To donate, call 94198377 or go to 3cr.org.au. The role it plays is really, really, really important. And the role it plays in empowering people on a personal level, empowering communities and giving communities the power to actually take a bit of control of their future cannot be underestimated.